Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, and for our very last episode of Season 1 of Queen of the Sciences, our topic is the Sermon on the Mount. We are taking this from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. There are analogs in Mark's Gospel, it's the Sermon on the Boat, and in St. Luke's Gospel, the Sermon on the Plain. But Matthew's version is the longest and indeed the most famous, and there is a definite analog we have going on here to um, Moses up on the mountain receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai. But this is Jesus up on the mountain who sits down sort of like a king enthroned and begins to instruct his disciples. Now I have to say, Dad, as I was rereading this in preparation for this episode, I was struck by how intensely familiar it is to the point that quite like the Lord's Prayer, which is embedded within it, it's almost hard to hear. It's hard to grasp what makes it startling and fresh because it's so deeply woven into the fabric of being Christian. But when I tried to, um, you know, step back and let myself hear it again in a fresh way to the extent that I could, I think what really came through to me this time is that Contrary to the maybe immediate perception that this is a series of instructions, this is more like um, a throwdown challenge of what kind of person you're going to be. And I think maybe the Sermon on the Mount has been easy to dismiss or distort because if it's just a series of laws, then they can also be used and abused by the church in a legalistic manner. But I think this is so far beyond the legalism versus gracious kindliness in your congregation kind of thing. I think this is the uh, from the depths of God's being call to our little souls in, in formation. Who are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? Are you someone finally that is going to be in fellowship with me? Um, it, it almost kind of rattled me. I have to say down to the core of my little tiny soul. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're on, on target here, uh, to reduce the sermon on the Mount Uh, to enlightened counsels of perfection or some kind of new law, new and improved version of the law or something like that, um, misses its uh, in-breaking, incisive power uh, to put the question, are you or are you not children of the Heavenly Father? And I think as we'll go through the uh, discussion today, uh, we'll see that the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily about what kind of person you are. It's primarily what kind of God God is, and therefore, who qualifies as true children of the Heavenly Father. Yeah, I think that's right. And though there are some allusions to issues of access, like Jesus might have been challenging the Pharisees on, like judge not lest ye be judged, and ongoing concerns in the Gospels about preventing the lost from getting access to God. I think that's that's really not the the root level issue here. Like you you were saying that if if the nature of reality is such that there is a God and God is this kind of God and God has created this kind of you, then what is going to come out of that? Um, I, I actually in, in connection 
connection with just being a pastor again and reflecting on what this office means, I was struck again. I don't actually think it's from the Sermon on the Mount, but um, you know, there's a passage where Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And it's got me thinking, when we talk about the lost, does that mean people who want to be saved, but can't find their way to salvation. And Jesus comes and rescues them kind of like in the, you know, the parable of the lost sheep or something, or are the lost, those who actually don't want God and don't want the light who prefer the darkness to use a very Johannine term. But, but even in this here in the sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the eye of your body is, um, the eye is the lamp of the body, uh, based on the ancient notion that the eye actually sent out light. And that's how vision works. But if the, the the light in you is darkness, then how dark it will be. Right. Well, like we've said in the previous episode, Sarah, about what is a human person, the fact that we are made in the image of God is indelible. We can't erase that no matter how hard we try. But what we fill that image up with, likeness or unlikeness to God, is an entirely different question. And it turns on who and what God is for us. So again, the Sermon on the Mount is going to be raising the question, what fills up your image of God, by forcing the question about who and what God truly is. Which means that the stakes are immensely, terrifyingly high here. This again is not a simplistic question of of legalism or access for you know the you know the, those who want to be saved. This is a much deeper question addressed to all of us about, like you said, what are we filling in the image of God in? And it's not like we are independent or free agents doing that. Of course, the reason why we're given the sermon is to interfere with what we might be filling ourselves up with. That's why the Gospel of Matthew you know, concludes. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, is found, it's the first block of teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, as you said. But if you go all the way to the conclusion of Matthew in chapter 28, the risen Christ gives that great commission that we're all so familiar with, go therefore uh, to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. This gives us the insight, this text gives us the insight of who the audience is and what the purpose is. The, the audience is the community of the disciples, those who have been sought out and called by Jesus, through the risen Jesus, through the gospel. And now what they are experiencing as they listen in on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount is the instruction, the instruction on what it means now to be Uh, seized and uh, enlisted and conscripted uh, by the gospel in its advance into the world and made into followers, disciples of Christ. So I think it's important for us to bear in mind that that's our access to this block of material. We don't come at this as philosophers or free thinkers uh, or anything else. We come at this as people who have been summoned into discipleship. Uh, The great book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship, is so frequently misunderstood in a legalistic kind of way, as though real Christians were the disciples who count the cost of discipleship and and gin themselves up to be Jesus, to be and do Jesus in the world. Well, that's not what Bonhoeffer was trying to say at all, and I want to read this passage 
The cost of discipleship is largely a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we may refer to Bonhoeffer from time to time, but let me just quote this passage to reinforce the point about who we are who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount. There is something wrong about all our usual questions about the Sermon. Every time we ask them, we are retreating from the presence of the living Christ and forgetting that Jesus Christ is not dead but alive and speaking to us today through the testimony of the Scriptures. He comes to us today and is present with us in bodily form and in his word. If we would hear his call to follow, we must listen where he is to be found, that is, in the church, through the ministry of the word and sacrament. The preaching of the church and the administration of the sacraments is the place where Jesus Christ is present. If you would hear the call of Jesus, you need no personal revelation. All you have to do is hear the sermon and receive the sacrament, that is, to hear the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. Here he is, the same Christ whom the disciples encountered, the same Christ, whole and entire. Yes, he is all here already, the glorified, victorious, and living Lord. Only Christ himself can call us to follow him, but discipleship never consists in this or that specific action. It is always a decision either for or against Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think that is what I was, uh, that puts it beautifully, what I was beginning to feel as I was trying to hear it afresh is that it's, again, not a, a list, a checklist of things to do to uh, prove you're good or to um, advance your, your own cause or something, but it's something about being a Christian is always being addressed by these words. And I think he makes the very important point that these are the words addressed by the Jesus who would be, from the perspective of the story, and has been, from our perspective, crucified and raised again. Those are not separable realities in right. the interpretation of the sermon. That's right. So if you are called to a discipleship, and that means bearing the cross, you are being conformed to the Christ who has pioneered the way for you by dying on your behalf and being raised for your vindication and justification. That put, puts the sermon in the context of the primitive kerygma, good news, of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. That's our access. That's the way in which we get appropriately, correctly to hear the sermon. And it matters very much that the man who was crucified and raised again is the man who gave this sermon, as opposed to many other sermons that might have been given in the history of the world, and by different kinds of pretend saviors. Well, why don't you, Sarah, why don't you just walk us through the main elements in the Sermon on the Mount, just so they're all on the same page. Okay, so it begins in chapter 5 with what are very famously known in English as the Beatitudes or the Blessed Are series of, of lines here. And it's a, a startling way to begin. I mean, that's not startling for a preacher to offer blessings, but as is well known, he puts the blessing on those who seem very unblessed in his time and place and in most times and places. The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So he kind of starts out by by announcing that everything that you know is wrong. <laughs> and he is here to, um, in the classic term, do a great reversal on what true blessedness is. 
Then we have um, a series of, of statements that all kind of build on each other. We have uh, him declaring, you are the salt of the earth, but warning that if the salt has lost its taste, then it's not good for anything. Uh, probably drawing on the image of how salt was extracted from you know, mineral goop uh, back in the day, because the, yeah, obviously the leftover goop wasn't worth anything. You are the light of the world. Again, such a, a striking thing to say to a bunch of um, Galilean peasants gathered around a mountaintop to listen to this strange man walking by with the sermon and uh, they are the light of the world and let your light shine before others. Then he says something that um, uh, makes many uh, a, a Lutheran inappropriately, I'd say, anxious. I have not come to abolish the law <laughs> or the prophets. Okay, we like the prophets, but the law, what? Uh, but Jesus insists he has not come to abolish but fulfill them. He is himself the fulfillment of all the law, um, which sounds good until he ends by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is a major stress point for interpreters. I'm sure we'll get back to this. Then what we have is ways in which the basic law of God delivered through Moses um, has been curtailed or cheapened, such as saying, you know, okay, I won't murder, but any other kind of hatred or harm is allowed. And Jesus, in a way, radicalizes the commandments the way kind of the ninth and 10th coveting commandments start to do within the, the Decalogue itself by saying, it's not just murder, but saying in your heart, you fool, that also is murder. Or, you know, adultery is obviously out, but even looking at a, a woman with lustful thoughts is already adultery. And with the corresponding statement about divorce, the one about oaths, in my mind, correlates to the Eighth Commandments on false witness, that um, overstating your assertions with oaths is actually undermining your everyday speech. And in fact, you are accountable for all of your everyday speech. And then the law on retaliation, which in its time was meant to limit vengeance so that you couldn't take more than was taken from you. But now Jesus says, take less than that was taken from you. In fact, in a way, open up an opportunity for further abuse. I have heard many um, interesting theories about what that actually means, such as like it would uh, entice your attacker to overstep Roman law and therefore be guaranteed to get them in trouble, which doesn't really seem in keeping with the spirit of Jesus here. And then this whole series ends with the love your enemies. So you have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This in my Bible is cited as coming from Leviticus 19. But let me again put in a plug for Leviticus here. Leviticus does not say you can hate your enemy. It only says love your neighbor. And apparently it was inferred over time that hating your enemy was legitimate. But that is not really what Leviticus is saying at all. And Jesus says very clearly here, that to be his disciple is to go this, you know, as if it's not hard enough to love your neighbors and family as it is, you also have to love your enemies and that God is the God of all and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And if you can't love your enemies too, you're no better than any average pagan slob. And it's in, in this specific context of loving the enemy that Jesus, again, terrifying line, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, where that line appears. So it seems that the perfection, I think that's not actually the best English translation of the word, but insofar as it's perfection, it really is pointed towards this loving of enemies going beyond the easy and obvious natural loves. So that takes us through chapter five. Then in chapter six, um, we have a lot of critiques of 
false piety or piety that is really a show for other people rather than a genuine response to God. So for instance, in almsgiving, when you give to the needy, you're not supposed to do it in a big showy way. So everyone sees my, how magnanimous you are. But um, it's something that you do uh, with your left hand. So your right hand doesn't know what it's doing, or I think the other way around. Your heavenly father will see it. And that's all that matters. And when you pray, don't be public, showy, standing out where everyone can see you, but um, discreet, quiet, and brief. Apparently, God is irritated by long prayers. I'm thrilled to hear that. And in this context, we get the Lord's Prayer. I actually uh, learned in preparing for this that the for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever. Amen. That is a, a later textual variance that made it into the standard Western canon, but now is usually left out of your Bible because it is not attested in the earliest manuscripts. Just in case you were wondering why uh, some say it and others don't, like Catholics don't say that when they say the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer concludes with a commentary on if you forgive others their trespasses, your father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive, the Lord will not forgive you in return. And that is, again, a rather alarming statement. Uh, Then we have, uh, again, about fasting. Again, religious commentary. Don't fast so other people know you're fasting and know how miserable you are. But let your father in heaven alone know that you're fasting. Then we have the treasures not on earth, but in heaven, uh, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Then the eye is the lamp of the body, like I mentioned earlier. No man can serve two masters. Do not be anxious. Lilies of the field. I mean, this is all so insanely famous and well known. (laughs) It just feels like rattling off one aphorism after another. But the, you know, the the cumulative effect is quite tremendous. Um, And chapter six concludes with, uh, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's a hard one to live in our modern world, but um, I'm sure I'm sure in a time of poverty when you literally didn't know if your daily bread was coming, uh, yet they had the same problem too. Then finally, we come into chapter seven, judge not that you not be judged. Basically, um, the measure you use will be measured back to you. So consider generosity rather than um, uh, nastiness and harshness. Um, the log and the speck, take the log out of your own eye first before you after go, go after the speck in your brother's eye. Uh, No pearls before swine, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Um, The fathers do not give stone in place of bread to their sons or serpents in place of fish. So how much more will your heavenly father give what you need? The Lord knows what you need. Then the golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Then enter by the narrow gates. Know the tree by its fruit, for a healthy tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Then another super anxiety-inducing passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay. And finally, we end with building your house on the rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. There is no storm or flood or wind that can knock it down. But those who hear the words and fail to do them are foolish, and their house will be built on sand. And when the storm comes, great will be the fall of that house. Amen. Amen. Let the preacher say amen. (laughs) 
And the well, and it concludes by saying the people were astounded, for Jesus taught with authority, not like the the scribes. Right. And that brings us back, of course, to the remarks on access that we were making before you gave us that neat uh, summary and outline of the Sermon on the Mount, that the one who speaks this sermon is the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, and he speaks it wherever the sermon is heard in the word and sacrament context of the assembly or congregation of Christ, where the whole sermon, beginning with the Beatitudes, on through the indicatives, you are light, you are salt, is a declaration of the status of the auditors, the listeners, how they now stand in the perspective, in the view of God, their heavenly Father. All the imperatives, do this, do this, do this, be perfect, etc., are themselves grounded in the supervening indicative, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. So Matthew wants to make it very clear that it is Jesus Christ blessing his disciples, informing them, performatively informing them of their new status as children of God, of the Heavenly Father, and followers of Christ. And so the imperative follows from the indicative in the sense of saying, be what you already are, do according to the way that God has already treated you. And that is a pattern we see all over the scripture, and it's certainly all over St. Paul. I mean, though, you know, every Pauline letter starts with all this that God has done for you and therefore made you to be. As a result, therefore, step up (laughs) and act like what you already are. You know, if you want to, like some Christian traditions want to call this the new law, and I don't think that's the most helpful way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount, but it would be allowable if the newness of the new law were precisely its express grounding in the indicative, the declarative of the gospel. That's the newness of it. And here now the law is simply laying out the implications for life in those who are effectively called to become the children of God. Yeah, we certainly um, in our next season, we'll explore the law gospel relationship in more detail. But I think it's important to see here that the if you have a, a law gospel ordering or a gospel law ordering, either one of those can be quite misleading. The Lutherans traditionally say first law, then gospel with the idea that the, the law somehow terrifies you into realizing your lostness and sinfulness. And then the gospel comes and rescues you. But that can imply then just that it's over and there's no more issue about who you are or what you will do with the rest of your life, um, which I think is horrifically misleading. But on the other side, like you said, if you have first gospel and then law, people also mishear that and think like, well, now that I'm a Christian, I really got to get my act together or I might lose my salvation or God might not love me or I have to prove. And then you get right back into the you know list of the things the Pharisees do to demonstrate that they're you know truly converted, truly righteous. They've turned their life around once I was lost, but now I'm found um, this kind of stuff. Or you, or you build a fence around the law so you don't violate it. 
you start making all sorts of tweaks and qualifications so that you can actually look at your empirical life and say, well, I live up to it. Right. And so I think that the, the danger in either of those is trying to actually create some sort of mechanized system of guarantee one way or another. And uh, to go back to Bonhoeffer, that is entirely a different thing from being addressed by the risen living Lord, you know, in his own speech and his own person to you. That just cuts out all of these sort of facile first then uh, first this then that um, end of discussion sort of uh, frames we would put on it. And that's where Bonhoeffer concludes that passage I read by saying it's not a matter of this concrete action or that concrete action. It's a it's basically and always simply the decision to follow Jesus Christ. It's simply, it's simply the matter of do I hear him? Does his word inform me of who I am? And therefore, as am I living in the obedience of faith, faith in that declaration? And the way the tradition used to try to make this clear was it, and Luther often does this, is he contrasts the obedience of the flesh to the obedience of the mind. And this needs a little bit of explanation. Because what by obedience of the flesh, he means a literal imitation. So I obey the commandment when I literally find a soldier to whom I give my cloak, or when I literally find an aggressor to whom I can be a doormat and turn my cheek. And Luther, like much of the Christian tradition, kind of ridiculed this as a literalistic uh, imitation of uh, something that was said in the first century Palestine that simply is irretrievably uh, lost to us and cannot be repeated uh, in different contexts and different times, literally. For example, the commandment to, if someone makes you walk a mile, right, uh, go a second mile, or if they ask for your coat, give them your cloak as well. They're talking here about Roman soldiers conscripting you to carry their luggage as they're marching around. You know, now you can't literally do that in another political situation. So contrasted to the literal imitation of the flesh is the imitation of the mind. And here that means that I know the mind of Christ. In faith, I know who Christ is, what this person is, what he's done, who he's about. And in my mind, I understand his self-giving love as now the principle of my existence. And I'm thinking with Christ. I have the mind of Christ, Paul says. And that's, I think, what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying. This is the mind of your heavenly Father who causes his reign to fall upon the wicked and the good, his sun to shine on the evil and the righteous alike. Now that you know the, who knows how to give good gifts to those who ask him, now that you know the mind of your heavenly Father, you are equipped in all circumstances to live literally in your own existence, to live out what that mentality requires of you. So actually, it, it even more lifts up the unique and irreducible person that you are to be and have the mind of Christ in your particular skin and in your particular place. Right. And so any legalistic expectation that all Christians are going to hear this and act 
on it in a way that's visibly um, conformable, uh, that you can point at one and say this one is is uh, obeying the sermon and that one is not. All of that is precluded. It's simply wiped away. There is no literal obedience to Jesus Christ that you can then use as a cookie cutter uh, for Christians or even worse as a kind of tyranny to say this is what Christian behavior is and this is what it isn't, uh, at least not in this sense. But, but you've, you've suggested that there has been some dispute over the proper interpretation and use of the Sermon on the Mount throughout Christian history. So maybe you want to give us one of your classic whirlwind tours of history and, um, and fill us in. Well, I think, yeah, uh, the, the text about you must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect was often earlier in church history taken as a clue I should back up a little bit. When the Gospel of Matthew was placed first in the New Testament canon, and when the kind of naive assumption was that we have the old law of Moses, now we have the new law of Christ, and that uh, presumption came along with all kinds of literalistic and legalistic hermeneutical suppositions. And I think we should add anti-Judaic ones. It was like the law of Moses or Levitical law was outmoded and primitive, and now we have a new law in its place, which... Supersedes, yeah. Supersedes. It was uh, horrifying in its consequences for Jews, but also had a way of undermining the gospel itself, because it was old law versus new law versus all laws um, are the consequence of the gospel, not a, a precursor to it or precondition for right, it. Right, right. Or that there's not any law in the gospel either. It's something we can talk about later. But in any case, um, that's right. These kind of suppositions inclined early readers to say, okay, we're reading the Sermon on the Mount. This is the new Christian law replacing the old law. They could appeal to the antitheses. You have heard it said of old, but I say to you, etc., for that interpretation. And then they could um, look at the text about perfection and then ponder the perplexity. Well, who actually lives this way? Who actually is a genuine, literal imitator of Christ, according to the Sermon on the Mount? And they drew the conclusion, well, most Christians are just ordinary folks, you know, ordinary lay people, laity, and uh, they're not capable of living lives of perfection. So they have to depend upon the church and its sacraments to be saved. But there are some who want truly to be disciples of Christ and aspire to and pursue perfection. So the Sermon on the Mount was spoken of as counsels of perfection for those who are into it and really want to be perfect. Okay, here the Sermon on the Mount is your law book, your code that's telling you how to live. That's such an absurdly Pharisaic reading of the Sermon on the Mount, which is so critical of the Pharisees. It just seems like... How could they not have seen the, the irony there? Well, I, I'm sure that practically speaking, you're a pastor now, I've been a pastor. You, it's not hard. The, the thought is never far away. How many of these Christians are parasitical hangers on or not doing anything <laughs> about being serious about Christianity and just me and a few others are the real workers in the church? 
You know. Oh, okay, fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. <laughs> you get that feeling all the time. I, in fact, I had a student in my office today complaining about the very that very kind of issue. So that that temptation to read the sermon that way is is right there. It's real. We feel it, right? Uh, especially those of us who are Levites, family Levites, the ones who are living on and believing vicariously on behalf of others. Anyway, the, but the, the, let's just stick to the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a, obviously, as every, in light of everything we've said, this is a serious misreading of the text. Now, you're going to talk about Luther in a little while, so I won't spend any time about him here. But everybody knows Luther affirmed the priesthood of all believers. And one of the meanings of that for Luther was that whatever the Sermon on the Mount is saying, it's not counsels for those who want to be perfect. It's divine word of God for all baptized believers. It applies both to clergy and to laity, to secular and to religious vocations. It's binding on all. So that's all I'm going to say about Luther. The Radical Reformation was a kind of uh, resistance to Luther's belief in the universal applicability. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. The Anabaptists said, Luther is right in principle. All Christians should live according to the Sermon on the Mount. But clearly, most of them don't. And that's why the Lutheran church is a false church. And the reason it's a false church is it baptizes infants who have no idea of what they're getting into. And so anyone who wants to be a Christian has to make the decision to be baptized seriously, and that means the commitment seriously to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. And so the pacifist reading of the Sermon on the Mount has its really its kind of modern origins in the Anabaptist movement. Well, the Anabaptist reading is powerful, and it was influential. And one of its uh, strange fruits was the reading of the Sermon on the Mount during the European Enlightenment. And the most famous example of this, uh, the cliche is, uh, I like the ethics of Jesus, but I don't like the religion about Jesus. <laughs> right. And the Sermon on the Mount is the most perfect expression of, of ethics that's ever been written. The golden rule, do to others as you would have them do unto you. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the Enlightenment takes this as a simple natural possibility. Challenging, of course. But it doesn't require baptism and sacraments and conversion and all that religious... doesn't even require God. It doesn't require Christ other than as a teacher, as a moral example and teacher. So the Enlightenment, the famous example of this is the American author of the Declaration of Independence and second president, Thomas Jefferson, who published or who created his own Bible by taking his Bible with scissors and paste and cutting out all the narrative parts and the supernatural miracle stories and just stitching together the ethical teachings of Jesus. That's called the Jefferson Bible. Right. And since we mentioned in a, a recent episode about Jefferson's slaveholdingness and his uh, admission that if he actually believed any of this God stuff, he would be terrified, we can see where that strategy ends you up. That's right. Anyone who wants to take the Sermon on the Mount as simple, naturally accessible and doable ethics should come to Jefferson's conclusions. If there is a living God, I fear for us because we don't live that way. 
at least in that perspective. And then finally, the outcome of this modern discussion, I think, is seen in, in Albert Schweitzer, the renegade genius uh, who left Christianity behind after considerable contributions to New Testament research. And one of the things he said was that the Sermon on the Mount is a totally apocalyptic ethic. The whole premise of the Sermon on the Mount is that the, the world as we know it is over, finished. It's on, it's on its last legs. It's dying. So in the world's last ravaged hour, how do the children of God live as they await the coming of the kingdom of God? Since they have no concern for the future of the economy, for the next generation, for the great political questions of war and peace or good government, since they can chuck the whole social question of human existence on the earth because they believe it's finished and they're awaiting miraculously a new heaven and a new earth. The, such people under this apocalyptic delusion can then live according to Jesus' ethic. Unfortunately, not the rest of us, not after 1900 years. So the idea is that it's a very short-term and short-lived ethic. Like, you can pull this off for a few months, maybe a couple years at most, but then you'll be raptured and it will be over. So, you know, it's not something for the long haul. Exactly. It was an emergency ethic, you know, during the apocalyptic crisis. Yeah. Right, right. So that's the tragic denouement of the, the story of the sermon through Christian history, from councils of perfection to uh, ob obligation for all baptized believers, to restricting true believers to a small committed group of uh, disciples, to naturalizing the Sermon on the Eth Mount as an ethic all rational people could affirm and follow, to despair at that, and then the realization that it's an apocalyptic ethic that only applies if you think the end of the world is at hand. Well, it's just fascinating how provocative and upsetting this series, I mean, this very short text with, uh, you know, a lot of pieces kind of stitched together. Uh, it's not like a narrative arc or something. There's a certain flow to it, but how deeply upsetting it has been to Western civilization for 2000 years to provoke such an array of responses. Though I have to say, though, I mean, I certainly don't uh, agree with the, the short term nature of it. I think Schweitzer at least captures that there is a kind of ultimate urgency about this sermon that in fact, I was sort of feeling like this is a place where as we've often talked in the season about the, the apocalyptic and the salvation history, I feel like the Sermon on the Mount is a place where those are actually being integrated of what does it mean to have, uh, to live in a way of where ultimate and urgent matters of who you are before God and who, who God is, first of all, before you um, touch in with the actual business of, of your speech, of your body and other people's bodies, your stuff, how you conduct yourself um, in and about society and in private. I think it's upsetting because you can't actually do religion and life separately. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so unsettling. That's right. I mean, and, and especially in the modern period in which we have systematically separated religion from life as private from public for the sermon to confront us with the fact that you cannot hide a light under a bushel. Your behavior is going to expose who the light of your life is. Your living is going to be a light, a lamp on a lampstand, whether you like it or not. 
And then, even though the sermon says, judge not lest you be judged, it also says, by their fruits you shall know them. So you're going to have to make judgments, and judgments that about not as simply about the lip service, but the life service. And again, this doesn't need to be in a very, you know, catty and legalistic way. I mean, the fact is we have we have little choice but to assess the people around us partly for our own safety, partly to see what they need, what we can offer, partly to know how we ourselves will live. I mean, I, I've often thought about, you know, now that I'm middle-aged, I look back at some of the ways I was when I was younger and feel like I was, you know, sometimes maybe too harsh or too judgmental, but uh, not to excuse that. But I think when, when you're a, a young person, you're fighting for your life in a, a very serious way, who you will be and what is really going to matter to you. And that's where that kind of sense of urgency comes from. It does need to be um, measured generously and not too harshly, lest you inadvertently push people away and in, in a wrong direction. But there, there is always this urgency in, in who we are and who we are with other people and what other people are to us that I don't think we can just... Um, wipe away with a, oh, don't judge not, you know, give everyone a break. Well, everyone here is fighting for their lives and for their souls. It's, it's not something you can take lightly. Actually, it does people a greater disservice if you take it lightly. Jesus says, you being wicked know how to give your children good gifts. You wouldn't give them a venomous snake when they ask for a piece of bread, would you? Well, I'm sorry, that's a discrimination. That's a judgment. You know the difference between nutrition and poison, right? And I think right. in that same way, you can. it's another way of capturing the point you're making. Well, tell us about Luther, since you read Luther's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, I actually had never done this before, but in preparation, I did this. And so here, I think, is a, a hilarious irony. So I was somehow given to believe that Luther's, and therefore the Lutheran reading of the Sermon on the Mount, is that, of course, you can't do this. Like, it's ridiculously impossible to live by the Sermon on the Mount and obey it. And so the whole reason it, is, it exists is in a purely second use or theological use of the law kind of way, which means in Lutheran speak that its purpose as law is to terrify you by holding up a mirror to your own face. And instead of seeing your own charming smile, you see Medusa with all of her snakes hissing at you and discover, I'm a horrible sinner. I can't do all of this. Who shall rescue me from this body of death? Oh, okay. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, I put my trust in him and I'm off the hook for the Sermon on the Mount. I really had, I thought that this was like, I just assumed that's what Luther would say because all my life, I don't know where from um, anymore, but I just heard it was obvious the Sermon on the Mount and Lutheran perspective is purely there to show you what a sinner you are. And then I pick up Luther's commentary and like from page one, he is vilifying this notion. As you said it in his time, it was called the councils of perfection approach. But the idea that a Christian was exempt from the Sermon on the Mount made him so angry that the entire commentary is just railing against this, this notion that it is purely, um, you know, a, a, a mirror terrifying function of the law thing. No, in fact, Luther says you're a Christian and therefore you are obligated 
obligated to obey all of this law. Now, of course, you obey it because you are baptized, because you have faith, because you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior who died on the cross and rose again for you. But because you know all this, because the Holy Spirit is operative in you, therefore, this is your life. This is what you're supposed to do. So the one distinction that Luther makes throughout, and this is probably in part what... um him responding to Anabaptists and them responding back to him. Also, likewise, with uh, monastic orders. Um, what he's distinguishing between is your life as a Christian and the life of non-Christians, and then the place where you interface as a Christian in an environment that is not specifically Christian. So he's thinking of people who hold political office or who are, you know, commanders of armies and are obligated to defend the nation, even with all of his um, uh, limitations on what counts as just war. Nevertheless, there will be times where killing becomes necessary, though uh, adultery never becomes necessary, for example. And so the distinction he really wants to make is that as a baptized believing Christian, you are accountable for this entire law. But where people try to fudge either by, an, in his uh, monastic understanding, saying, well, it doesn't matter uh, because you're not a monk, so you can't keep it, so whatever, don't worry about it. That's one extreme. The other extreme is saying, the Anabaptist extreme is, well, um, because you're a Christian, you can't possibly be involved in any of these secular businesses um, that may involve some kind of violence or violation of these laws. Luther instead puts you in the incredibly awkward and absolutely necessary situation of being a Christian who lives in a world full of sin and people who are not Christians and are not committed to Jesus and then what? What are you going to do? You have to be there. You have to be a part of it. And so you are put out there. And I mean, I think actually what he calls for is extremely challenging and difficult, which is that you are always bearing this ethic of Christ, this uh, mind of Christ, as you said, in you as you go out into places that are going to be very hostile to it and ha want nothing to do with it. But you're not off the hook. and you. But you're not off the hook either as a Christian, but also you're not allowed to step out of the world. You have to keep going into the world with that. And that, in a sense, is the light that is shining out there. So I think that's very good, Sarah. You, you cleared up a, a really basic misconception of Luther's understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm still a little fuzzy on, on, on the positive interpretation he makes of the sermon along the lines you're giving it. Let me put the question uh, to you this way. If it's an imitation of the mind, the, of the mind of Christ, and not a literal imitation of Christ in the first century of Palestine under Roman occupation, and even if we can only know the mind of Christ by thinking about the context of that occupation in the first century and the oppression that was involved in it, having all, with all those qualifications, if the essence of the law is love, that's clear later in the Gospel of Matthew, love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. In the sermon, it's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. So if the mind of Christ is self-giving love on behalf of others, if that's knowing that, if having that mentality of the double love commandment as the mind of Christ, how is it different when I turn my cheek to the person in my familiar company who insults me or disrespects me or even injures me? And I say to that person who injures me, not as a doormat, 
here's my other cheek, but rather, you can go ahead and strike me. I'm not going to strike back because I want to bear witness to you of a better way and so forth and so on, something like that. How is that different from a soldier who puts his or her life on the line in self-sacrificing love to defend an innocent against aggression? I think for Luther, the difference between personal and public or private and official behavior is a distinction in certain kinds of human relationships, but it's not a distinction that disqualifies the law of self-giving love. The soldier who gives, or the police officer who puts his or her body between the bullet of the aggressor and the innocent victim is giving himself in the same way that the Christian who in personal life turns the other cheek to someone who is uh, abused or disrespected for the sake of a, a reconciliation. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that's that's actually right on. I think what Luther, from the whole commentary, what he sees is that in your private office as a Christian believer, that having the mind of Christ come into you will then infiltrate your public office and impact how you are a judge, a soldier, a government official, a parent. Uh, for him, you know, something like parent and, and spouse are also, in a sense, public and secular occupations, that it will... It it will uh, bleed outward. <laughs> Let's use a vivid term there from your 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 private stance before God into your public office. He doesn't assume that it will be easy, and he will assume lots of people in secular offices who perhaps he he can get what the Anabaptist critique is here, who claim to be Christian are not actually allowing the mind of Christ to bleed into who they are publicly. And he certainly is on the record with lots and lots of criticisms of public office holders who claim to be Christians who are not in any way letting the mind of Christ get in there. But he defends the legitimacy of these public offices as care of what we'd call now care of creation, care of civil society, in a way that you you cannot make a law of forgiving, turning the other cheek, non-oath-taking. There are all sorts of things in the Sermon of the Mount that actually would be deadly if you turn them into civil or state law. It would rob them, in fact, of their being something about your standing before God. I will say, though, that as I was reading this, of course, I have the benefit of 500 years of hindsight. I don't think that Luther did or maybe could have gave enough um, a warning or admonition against the ways in which a public office exercised in a secular world that by and large could not care in the slightest about the Sermon on the Mount would bleed backwards into your private life as a Christian. And of course, I can't help but think of uh, 20th century Christendom societies that were convinced they were Christian and then did horrific things to other human beings and to the earth and to enemies and were somehow rendered utterly incapable of seeing that failure of connection there. So I think, you know, in principle, what Luther is saying that though we we must in principle distinguish between the public and private person, the, the private person who is the believer must infiltrate the public person, at least in how they carry themselves out, not in terms of formulating laws that are therefore imposed by force on other people. But I think we need to be extra careful now about how our public and secular personae bleed backwards and undermine the mind of Christ, um, not only in the public life, but also in the private life. That's, that's really great, Sarah. That's a, so the, the public-private distinction is a two-way street. 
In Luther's culture, he assumed that it was the private person, that is to say, the conscience captured by the gospel, which was, would be the heart and soul of the human being and would be infiltrating then the outward man, the outward behavior. But in our culture, it's almost flipped. Uh, the, the, all the pressure, all the sinfulness of our social systems penetrates into the inner life, in, into our inner lives, and eclipses that relationship with God mediated by the Sermon on, on the Mount. You know, one of the things the sermon says very clearly, especially in the last chapter, is in the passages about not being able to serve two masters about seeking first the kingdom of God. This is all another way of getting at the public-private distinction because for the sermon, and I think for Luther's reading of the sermon, the real human being is the one who is motivated in everything by what he or she loves. Uh, That's why you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's categorical statement of the first commandment in the seventh chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And it makes it clear what Luther has in mind by the so-called private person. Who in your heart of hearts do you really desire? To whom do you cling in every time of trouble? Right, And that, of course, correlates in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus's revelation of the uh, infinite generosity of the one he calls the Heavenly Father, who sees in secret and knows in secret. And this is another aspect uh, of the, this interiorization of the law. You've heard it said, you know, you shall not murder, but I say don't hate your enemies, etc. That together with the Heavenly Father's being proclaimed as the one who knows in secret and sees in secret, is this uh, also this opening up of the human person to inspection. That it's not simply the outward deed, but it's the, the mind, the mentality, the heart, the seeking, the love that motivates the deeds, that's hidden behind the surface and so forth. So I think that all of these rich uh, aspects uh, of Luther's inter- reading of the sermon are on target. And our problem is that the relationship of public and private has flipped in the last 500 years in very in very damaging ways. And I think more of us are public now than ever before in human history. I mean, I think for most of human history, there were very few public figures. Most people lived fairly private life. I mean, of course, you know, in, in the sense of being married and being part of a community, they were they were public. But there's a way in which we're kind of all publicly on trial all the time now, and we're being watched all the time now, you know, by, by a... Uh, satellites and cameras, if not on social media. So there is this, I think, um, unbelievable pressure that we see manifesting also in kind of mass anxiety and depressive disorders of what it means to have only your external public persona constantly under examination to the point that you don't even have time to find out who your private person is, much less invest in that private person in close relationship and prayer with God. Yeah, wow, well said. Yeah, very good, sir. I think we've uh, really knocked it out of the park on this discussion. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very happy with this. I think that to kind of draw to a conclusion, I mean, there's so much more that could be said, but it, but at least this much I think can be said. The uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, is addressed to disciples. That means to all Christians, not to an elite group of Christians, but to all Christians. And 
Christians are those who have been called, uh, effectively called by the word of Christ in the church, in the power of the Spirit. They are the ones whose lives are being exhibited in the Sermon on the Mount. It's didactic. It's not legislative in the sense of do this in order to be a Christian. It's didactic in the sense of, all right, let's. what does it mean to be a child of God? That's who you are now. Let's see what this, this means. So the heart of the sermon is, is not the literal ethical suggestions, which are temporally bound to the time and place of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, but to the revelation of the Heavenly Father, uh, whose generosity is from age to age and whose loving kindness is the foundation of every Christian life. And then we have to wrestle with how that relates to uh, our public lives and our public roles, where the literal counsels of the Sermon on the Mount cannot literally be kept. We can't literally keep the commandments any more than the simple act of turning on a light switch, which is burning coal, which is poisoning the atmosphere with CO2. We can't, we can't get out of the world. We are organically bound to the world. And what the Sermon on the Mount is talking about here is a breach in mentality, a breach in conscience uh, from the domination of the world. Uh, that's what makes children of God. I think where I came to at the end of, of this was that I would rather fail at the Sermon on the Mount than succeed at anything else. So, well, I will be continuing to ponder it and developing more thoughts because uh, a brief advertisement here, folks. Next June, that's June of 2020, the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology is hosting its annual conference, and the theme is the Sermon on the Mount. I think, Dad, you may have had a hand in that topic somehow. And uh, yours truly, that's me, Sarah. I'm going to be one of the speakers, along with a lot of other really great people who are going to be talking further about the Sermon on the Mount and what it means for the Christian life. And those, those dates are June 8 to 10 at the, on the campus of Loyola University in Baltimore. And you can look for information on that conference at the uh, website of the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology. Full disclosure, I'm a member of the board. Right. And we are not getting a kickback for saying this. We're just right. doing it for free. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to it. This is kind of an appetizer on the way to that uh, great conference. Yeah, that's great. I'm looking forward to it. I've, I've been to them before, and they're a really excellent group of both uh, attendants and speakers. Uh, but as for Queen of the Sciences, this is the final episode of season one, our 20th episode. We will resume the conversational aspect of our podcast, um, hopefully in January of 2020. But between now and then, don't despair. We're going to have some bonus episodes for you that talks that uh, both dad and I have given here and there. So you can hear us kind of going the um, straight lecture route, but still promises to be a deeply edifying and stimulating for your heart, mind, and soul. Any final thoughts for the season, Dad? Well, I'm glad we've got it under our belts. I look forward to next season. Signing off until after Christmas and the new year, I'm Paul R. Henlicky. <laughs> and I'm Sarah Henlicky-Wilson. See you next year. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.